Hey everyone, you're listening to another episode of Divergent Conversations podcast. I'm your co-host, Patrick Casal. And I'm Dr. Neff. And today we are going to talk about our journey into becoming therapists and maybe what we would be doing if we weren't masking and if we weren't therapists. So Megan, you you wanted to start this topic up, so take it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I've got kind of two prongs that have informed my interest in this topic. One, I, I get this in my DMs and my emails a lot from either students who are going through programs, autistic ADHD students going through programs who are interacting with the ableism in the system and just being like, how did you do this? How do you become a therapist? Do, do I come out as an autistic therapist? So one, just I get a lot of questions around this. And then the second reason, oh, or people who aren't necessarily in training, but they're thinking about going into training, but they're terrified about the process of becoming an autistic therapist. Um, the second reason is I, so I, I did something kind of impulsive, but like also I've been thinking about it for a few years, but I don't know if you're like this where you're thinking about something and then you just are like, yes, and then you're all in. Um, so I did that where I applied for a psychoanalytic relational institute that would start next year. Um, and whenever you're applying for things like programs or internships, the classic question is, why did you become a therapist? And I, I typically start with some like beautiful Martin Buber quote. Martin Buber is a Jewish philosopher who I is definitely a special interest in mine, who talks a lot about like authentic human encounter. But what I found myself saying instead of some Martin Buber quote, for the first time I said, I became a therapist because I'm autistic. And so much of the messaging is we become therapists despite our autism versus like because of our autism. So that just started a train of thought this last week. I was really curious about around the intersection of how autism informed me becoming a therapist, how it influences, and then for other people as, as well who might be interested in entering this profession. That was a very long-winded way of answering your question, Patrick. No, I think it's a, it's a perfectly uh, Megan, Anna way of answering my question. So it, it is a very autistic Megan, Anna way of answering your question. I like barely remember what your question was at this point, but I think it was something I, about I why, why the heck are we talking about this today? And so you're talking about the DMs you're getting from people who are experiencing ableism in their program. How the hell did mm-hmm. you get this? When do I start? Like, mm-hmm. when do I come out and openly disclose? Right. That's a, yep. that's a piece. But you mentioned like, did I become a therapist because I'm autistic instead mm-hmm. of in spite of, can you yeah. kind of go a little deeper on that? Like elaborate more on what you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm curious for the audience, like, yeah. So if you are coming to terms mm-hmm. with, I became a therapist because I'm autistic. Uh-huh. Tell us yeah. what that means for you. Yeah. Gosh, there like there's so many ways that inform that. Um, I, I think one of the first things that that comes to my mind is the hot potato phenomena. So I don't. I'm curious if you relate to this, but ever since I was little, like I've I've struggled with social based questions, which is very common for autistic people. So even now, like. My my sister, who I'm fairly close with, when we interact, she'll often start with "How are you?" And I now I'm comfortable just being like, I don't know how to answer that, Sarah. Um, but 
whenever, when I was younger, whenever someone would ask me a question about my personhood, I, I'd have kind of that mini freeze response. So it felt like I was holding the hot potato in the conversation. And it was like, okay, how do I get them holding the hot potato? And it was, I became very strategic with getting the other person talking. And here's the thing, people like to talk about themselves. And so I, I learned that pretty young. And so I got really skilled as an adaptation to my social struggles at drawing the other person out. And this is what's so interesting, right? If you look closely at my dialogues throughout life, I do struggle with reciprocal communication, but it wasn't obvious because what I was doing was I, I was not the reciprocal person in many of my conversations. I was drawing the other person out, getting them talking. So people wouldn't leave a conversation being like, that was weird. They'd usually leave a conversation being like, oh, I felt seen and understood. And that person's really curious about me. And that was a really sophisticated adaptation to my social struggles. So that's, that's one reason. I'm, I'm curious first, like hot potato phen phenomena. Do you relate to that at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that it's such a great way to turn the conversation around and take the pressure and the the focus off of you mm -hmm. and to say, like, oh, I'm uncomfortable, but I know how to make this person comfortable. And I can, mm -hmm. I can be that mirror for them. I can be that place to, to reflect and yeah. be really curious yeah. and be really interested. And learning that at such a young age is, is so fascinating when we start thinking back about childhood experience and, and how we kind of navigated the world and made it safe, quote unquote, safe for ourselves. And I think that that obviously does allow for that person to feel taken care of. It allows mm -hmm. them to feel heard and validated and seen coming away from the conversation, probably like Megan is the mm -hmm. best friend in the world. They listen so well, like, they, they make me feel so much better. And I think that also maybe at such a young age does something to our own sense of self when someone's oh like, my gosh. oh, you're yeah. really good at this. Like yeah. you are really good listener, yeah. caretaker, yeah. Uh, whatever the, the um, qualifier is. And that becomes is. their sense of self-worth and value. Absolutely. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's our social currency. And I, and I knew that. Like this is how I develop social currency and it also like, yes, it was more comfortable for the other person, but it was also more comfortable for me. Like those conversations also did feel good to me because it felt like um, for, for when I genuinely am curious about people. So that probably helps. But it also it just felt good to be that presence. I noticed that it was really interesting in my doctoral program. What I noticed was I, I struggled to get close to people in my cohort. And what I did is I took on a role of mentor, like I TA'd all the classes and when I looked at my week, I was like, all of my social interactions are mentorships. And so becoming a mentor is how I figured out a way to socially connect um, in, in a way that worked because of the hot potato. Like that's your role when you're a mentor is to create space for the other. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fulfilling a lot of different needs by taking on that mentorship role or that, that helper role. And yeah. it's also, I think, you know, thinking about my own journey into becoming a helper and a therapist is just the fact that it takes so much of the pressure, again, like you're saying, mm -hmm. off of ourselves to have to be yeah. the center of attention. And I think if you're used to that and, and that's been kind of your experience for throughout life, 
it is a really great profession because, you know, I'm not in there to mm -hmm. talk about myself. I'm not in there. Mm -hmm. I do disclose. I think that's necessary for um, connecting with any sort of uh, neurodivergent uh, client of mine. But like, I also just know and acknowledge that this 60 minutes doesn't have to be about me. And mm -hmm. that's really, that, that takes all the pressure off of like, mm -hmm. how am mm -hmm. I supposed to show up and act and engage mm -hmm. and interact? Yeah. And it provides such a tight frame, like the 60 minutes. So I, um, I think we briefly mentioned we're both avoidant attached, like our structure, but I love intense, authentic connection, which I also think is an autistic thing, which I think is one reason I became a therapist is my craving for the authentic, um, but I really struggle with maintenance of friendships. Like I don't, I don't have friends, Patrick, like you, you are probably the closest thing to a friend in my life right now. And it's, and it's because we have a, a frame around work that we interact. Like, I just, I don't really do friendship partly because of the maintenance and for a long time, friends, um, when I have had them, they've, they've felt like a thing to maintain. I realize that sounds terrible. Um, but it's, I think it's, has to do with how limited my social resources are. The fact that when I do have friends, I, I struggle to bring myself versus kind of foster conversation. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into that. But what I love about therapy is it's a tight frame. I am present to that person for 60 minutes and, and I'm very present and, and that's the frame. It's, it's, there's not a expectation. I mean, obviously there's charting and if there's like email correspondence that needs to happen, but there's not expectations outside of that frame around how you're going to maintain this relationship. Whereas in other relationships, it's like, well, you haven't texted me for six weeks or you haven't like, there's all that maintenance that goes into it. That's really, really hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. And I just want to circle back. I feel honored to be <laughs> my only friend. Yeah, you're your only friend right now. Do you do uh, you have friends? I do. Yeah. I mean, I I find it I find it challenging. Like it's a weird I'm trying to think of my I'm trying to put cohesive thoughts together right now. Um <laughs> it's hard. It is hard. I I think that my experience is that people often are more attracted to me socially or in terms of friendship mm -hmm. than I am to them. Yeah. And yeah. I get that. People who consider me to be like one of their closer uh -huh. friends when in reality, I like, I don't really know that much about them, nor do they uh -huh. know that about me. So that's always a strange dynamic. Um, but I mean, I've always been a part of soccer teams and, and just, I think that having that type of like cohesive camaraderie has been really helpful mm -hmm. for me because you don't really have to show up to a team sport with the intention of making friendships or developing relationships. It's like you're there for a common goal, right? Like it's our goal, parallel play. Yeah, exactly. And you're there yeah. to just perform as a unit. And like, sounds so nice. Yeah. It, it, that's my, that's my solace. Like I'm not a religious human being when I get to the soccer fields, like my teammates still to this day will make fun of me because I show up like an hour early and they'll show up like 12 minutes before kickoff. And I'm like, how are you fucking doing this? Like, I need to stretch. But I just find that that is the one place in my life where I have like just complete relief mm. where 
you and I have talked about that constant buzz and that discomfort and that anxiety and the, mm-hmm. everything that is our experience. But like, that is the place where that is gone. It's just vacancy. It's just like complete mm-hmm. silence. And I think that for me is the most peaceful mm-hmm. place on earth. I realize yeah. I'm diverging way over here now. <laughs> but yes, I do have some friends. Mm-hmm. I would say that I still even if I have people who I like a lot and I spend time with and I consistently communicate with, I still feel disconnected from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't feel like I don't feel like we're like always attuned or in sync because I think I also keep myself at a distance and I we have to if we socialize, it's gotta be at my house. It's gotta be at the places mm-hmm. I'm going. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that's challenging for some of them who are like, I don't wanna fucking go to this place like for the hundredth time. Like I don't want to come to your house. How come you never come to my house? But mm-hmm. I mean, that is mm-hmm. the nature of, of a lot of my relationships for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we're on a rabbit, we're on a rabbit trail, but maybe not. I also wonder. Um, so one of the things I learned early in the like autism research discovery phase was how autistic people do better in kind of structured social interactions where they have a frame. So like it it could be as simple as if you're at a party, you become the person that washes the dishes, like you have a role. And, and so, and that's so helpful. And I so resonate with that, that I, I wonder if part of becoming a therapist is it gives a role to the really deep way of interacting with other humans. And so it, it is a more tolerable way of socially connecting and and a way of connecting really deeply and really meaningfully. So I wonder if the struggle around social connection and the desire for social connection is one of the reasons that we became therapists or the other autistic people might become therapists. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I also want to give you credit for looping me back in. You know, it's usually the other way back around. So are you more in your ADHD brain today? Majorly. I've got Ireland coming up next week. My brain is so mm-hmm. scattered. Um, but I think you're right. I think it's that deep desire to have connection and mm-hmm. having that regimented, structured, almost mm-hmm. like this is what to expect in this environment. This is what's yep. allowable. This is what's not. Mm-hmm. This is what we talk about. This is what we don't. Mm-hmm. And we have mm-hmm. these clear boundaries for the most part of like, okay, after that 60 minutes, not that you don't mm-hmm. think about your clients after that 60 minutes, right. but like you don't have the pressure and responsibility is no longer on you. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it allows you to have that human connection, that empathy that so many people misconstrue and misunderstand. Like we, the the mythology of like autistic people can't be empathetic and they can't mm-hmm, like connect mm-hmm. with other people. And that's fucking mm-hmm. bullshit. But right. Right. So many of us are hyper empathetic. Yeah. Right? Like it has to be deep. You mentioned depth connection. And I think yeah. Yeah. therapy allows you to have mm-hmm. consistent depth connection. And I, which is, is so like, it's so, um, the word oxygen is coming to my mind. Um, it's oxygenating to have deep human connections. The the small talk is not oxygenating for us. It's not, I I saw a study once that like small talk releases dopamine for non-autistic people's brain. I was like, wow, that must be nice. No wonder they do this nonsensical thing. Um, (laughs) but one thing I told my my therapist a while back was, um, and forgive me if I've said this on this podcast before, but 
I was like, I feel like I don't have social ligaments. Like, so the ligaments are what make our body move, but I'm really good when we get into the muscle. So like once I'm in a deep conversation, I'm, I'm good. But the, like the transition, the small talk, getting into that conversation, getting out of it and therapy, it's, it's mostly all muscle, especially now that I work primarily with autistic clients, we just jump right in. Like, I love it. My clients don't, we don't do the like small talk five minute. When I was working with non-autistic clients, there would still be like typically a five minute small talk before you get into the session. And with autistic clients, it's more likely just like, okay, this is what's on my mind. Let's go. Um, so I yeah. love that is that I don't, it's okay. I don't have social ligaments as a therapist. Yeah. I think that takes a lot of that unnecessary energy, emotional labor and energy for us out of the equation. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've even done a, I've been trying to be mindful, not just for your, our sake and the dynamic, but like my own sake of like, when we get into the zoom room, not being like, Megan, how are you doing? And then you looking at me and be like, stop fucking asking me that. I literally was just thinking about it, how I was like, Patrick, can we just hit record when we get into the Zoom room? I wonder if that was my way of saying, like, can we just get to the muscle and not try and do the social ligament thing? Because I don't like I that. It. And it helps yeah. me, too, because I don't mm -hmm. like it either. But And I think that it's just allowing for that that state where you feel the most at home or natural or at peace in terms of however we can do those things. And I just think that as a therapist, you know, having that empathetic reflection process, going deep, being curious, asking questions, like it's really a lovely experience and one that we don't often have in our day to day. And okay. it makes me think of clients who I had starting off like in private practice where I didn't know I was autistic. I also didn't know who I was as a therapist. I was just like mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to be in private practice. And the artificiality, the small talk, the clients who weren't ready to go deeper, the clients who weren't a great fit or who mm -hmm. probably, you know, it just felt like pulling teeth a lot of the time. And I just mm -hmm. noticed how irritated I would get and how like bored I would get too. Where yeah. I was just like, yeah. okay, like, can do we really talk mm -hmm. about this thing over and over and over mm -hmm. again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think you know, I, I want to think about one thing too, like we are so good at absorbing other people's energy and picking mm -hmm. up on how people are experiencing the world, especially people who are struggling. Like we have that fucking radar where we're like, I can tell this person's really having mm -hmm. a hard time. And you and I talked about this last week where we were talking about like talking to just uh, folks who maybe were homeless and mm -hmm. people who were struggling yeah. people who were just like really obviously having a hard time to us and just really picking up on that and, and wanting to be curious wanting to talk wanting to support mm -hmm. and i think that helps with being a good therapist because that intuition that ability to read body language so quickly because we've gotten so accustomed to having to do that and right. facial expressions and and eye movement and everything that goes into mm -hmm. tracking because we're tracking all the time anyway so, okay, here's a provocative question. We're talking about the traumatized parts of being autistic, right? The the adaptations we made to socially blend in, the hypervigilance we have needed to have around other people to decode their body language and, and how that has made us therapists. So 
essentially, I think we're saying we became therapists out of our trauma. So what do we do with that when we're now, we're both therapists? Well, actually you're not, let, let's pretend you're still seeing clients. Um, we're both in this profession and we now are looking back and like, oh, my trauma brought me here. Does that like, does that take the meaning away for you? Does that like, how does that shape how you think about this profession if our trauma is what brought us here? And and I think that's too reductionistic of a narrative. I realize it's also our empathy, but it, it it's a both and it's it's a mixed narrative. Um, but it does seem like our our autistic trauma around masking is a big piece for both of us that brought us to this profession. So does that shape how you experience it for you? That's such a good question. I I think that my my conceptualization of, of being a therapist, because you know, for those of you who don't know, I also am a therapist in private practice, an entrepreneur coach. So like a lot mm -hmm. of my time is spent with therapists now, not okay. clients, but therapists who are working on the mo emotional and psychological side of business ownership. And my, this is just my take on therapists in general, not just autistic therapists, that so many therapists have become therapists because of their trauma histories, because yeah. of their own yeah. journeys. That's true. And but here's the thing that I think happens. A lot of therapists get into this work to heal their trauma through the work mm -hmm. that they do. Yep. Which is fine if you have awareness that that's what's happening. It's really dangerous if that's happening and you're unaware. That's where people, therapists can do a lot of harm, I think. Absolutely. A hundred, a hundred percent. Like everyone in who's a therapist has their own story, has their own struggles, mm -hmm. has... We're, we're humans. I mean, we've all experienced it. It probably was a catalyst and a a positive factor in terms of what do I want to be when I grow mm -hmm. up, which I don't know mm -hmm. how to fucking answer that anyway. But I still don't know at 36 mm -hmm. what I want to be when I grow up. Um, but I do think like without that awareness, yes, very damaging. But everyone has gotten into this field for a reason. But mm -hmm. the difference I think is what I see with autistic therapists is that you're not necessarily trying to heal yourself through the work that you're doing. You were brought to the work because of the, mm -hmm. uh, the masking trauma and mm -hmm. trauma that you've endured throughout life. But that's your only way of acknowledging how to be. So I don't yeah. know if like yeah. necessarily changes because you're helping other people understand this and, and process their own emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. Like I just assume, I just think that when I'm in the therapy room, this is the only way I know how to be. And the therapy room is the only place that I'm actually allowed to do this in a way mm -hmm. where it's actually professionally helpful in mm -hmm. that, in that mm -hmm. lens because that's the only way I know how to show up. But you have to mask so often in so many other arenas. You don't always get to show up like this. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist, especially like yourself, Megan, like working specifically with autistic clients, I imagine that feels so fucking freeing for you. In yeah, the it's amazing. Yeah, like yeah. you already know going into these relationships, mm -hmm. I get to just show up and be mm -hmm. real. And yeah. I think that feels really liberating. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't get to experience that. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel really different when I'm... Uh, and and I, it's been a while, but you know, even last year, I, I had some people I was working with who who weren't neurodivergent and, um, it, 
I, I don't do that anymore. And it's for a reason. It's because it, it feels really, it does feel a lot more like masking. Um, yeah, if, if it feels so freeing. It, it's, it's the biggest, um, kind of privilege and gift to come out of the last two years is the ability to pivot, to work with autistic clients. And, and I really feel for therapists who a aren't out. And so, and B aren't able to curate their, their client load in that way. Cause it's, it's really hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it, it's, it's really hard and that's where the misfiring happens. You know, that's mm-hmm. when you start to doubt your ability as a therapist too, because the outcomes mm-hmm. aren't there. The relationships aren't being established. And mm-hmm. you know, that, that goes further than autistic therapists in general. I mean, that's, that's just rapport mm-hmm. 101, but I do think for us, it's, it's, an, it's an even deeper, more important, even like absolutely necessary component of the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and partly I became, it's so interesting. If you saw me work as a therapist a couple of years to how I am now, it's just so different. Like I, before I would rarely self-disclose, like if someone's, you know, do you have children? I'd, I'd maybe say yes, but then I'd like think through the pros and cons of self-disclosing that and maybe ask them like why they needed to know that, you know, all that like turnaround of like, well, what would that mean to you if I had children? Um, I self-disclose so much now and I still, I, I still am very reflective of why am I self-disclosing? Who is this for? Like I've got my kind of filter I run through, but I think it was actually on a podcast you did with Joel Schwartz, where you talked about this, how like autistic people need, like, um, we need autistic mentors in the sense of we need our, like, we don't have stories. And so sharing from our lived experience in the context of therapy um, can be really appropriate. And I come from a more like psychodynamic lens where self-disclosure is very restrictive. So that's a, that's been a really interesting shift in my therapy to think about self-disclosure so differently, but I'm, yeah, I'm just so different in the therapy room as a therapist than I was two years ago. You know, that's, that's interesting to see the transition and evolution and I'm thinking about my own journey too. Like I, I haven't seen therapy clients in about six months now, but um, the ones that I was seeing before my throat surgery were all neurodivergent clients. And mm-hmm. most of them were coming to terms with being autistic. And mm-hmm. I just realized that you start to really attract the right clients when you're able to mm-hmm. unmask and, and disclose yourself. Like as a professional, it really does empower the client to say like, fuck, finally, a therapist mm-hmm. is going to get it instead mm-hmm. of like having to guess if you're going to understand or be affirmative mm-hmm. yeah. and I know we can do an app. Ep- I know, I think we have an idea to do an episode about seeking out neurodivergent affirmative or neurodiversity, affirmative therapy. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're playing this guessing game a lot of the time. If someone doesn't come out and say, this is who right. I specialize in working with and why. Yeah. And you know, I, I do think that that disclosure piece is so crucial and you know, Processing special interests in therapy is unbelievably mm-hmm. therapeutic. But yeah. then if you get caught up in the like, well, how do I present this to the insurance company? And how do I talk mm-hmm. about this? Like, uh-huh. like talked about Lord of the Rings for 60 minutes and like, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. But it's yeah. so unbelievably validating for mm-hmm. you to be able to support someone who's autistic by diving deep into their special interests. 
I think you call that we engaged in co-regulation and um, self-soothing. But and that, but that is what makes it like therapy, right? It's at the end of the hour, then it's like, um, where were you during this hour? What was that like for you, for us to connect in this way? Um, and that's that that reflection then at the end of of talking about special interests or connecting in ways that might not ter- typically be thought of as therapeutic. That's, I think, what then makes it therapeutic is then it's like, oh, yeah, I do feel connected to you. And it's because we're having an object-based conversation, not a social-based conversation, or we're connecting around interests, not this. Um, I had a thought and then it, I think it's gone. Um, But I will... I am a little curious because the other part, unless I'm like cutting off thoughts that you have around this, but the other part of the conversation was around people who are maybe in training programs or thinking about going through training programs. Like I've, I've heard some pretty horrendous stuff from people like things such as my professor said that you can't be autistic and a therapist. Like this is the kind of things they're hearing in classes and from their professors um, which I think, I, I mean, not even to talk about just the executive functioning and sensory overload of making it through a program, but to be hearing from your professors, things such as autistic people can't be therapists. Um, like, do you have any words of encouragement or like, what would you say to people who are thinking about entering this profession, who are in training I'm giving you the hot potato by saying, what are your words of encouragement for this really? Well, you know, I think what immediately comes up is, is kind of like rage. So then I have to center myself to think about how I want to respond appropriately. One, if you're listening to this and you're in a program and and that's your experience, I I think that we both just want to send you our, our deepest sincerest apologies because not only can you be, a therapist as an autistic person, you can be a fucking wonderful therapist as an (laughs) autistic person. Your abilities to show up authentically set you apart from those who cannot. And I know so many therapists who went through a program and don't even get me started on the assembly line process of grad school at this point in time, but Mm. who just have never done their own deep, reflective, oriented work. And I believe wholeheartedly that that sets us apart because if you're willing to go deep and you're willing to have the hard conversations, you're going to be able to hold that space for your clients. You're going to be able to show up the way that they need you to show up. When the conversation takes a turn from your connections and associations with the Lord of the Rings to like, hey, I'm actively suicidal and struggling Mm -hmm. with A, B, and C. You can't show up for your clients if you cannot be in that space. Like if you can't go deep, if you can't sit with that discomfort, if you can't mirror back and forth, if you can't really pick up on on what's happening behind the scenes for your clients, like these are so important and you are all so gifted at doing these things. We're going to hear this, right? Like from professors, from agency uh, community mental health providers and supervisors are like, you can't have these accommodations. You can't stim in class. You can't move. You can't fidget. You're disruptive. The same shit that we've heard all of our lives or some professors pushing ABA therapy or whatever the case may be. But in reality, like 
there's such a big movement right now. And Megan, you, I'm, I'm proud to say that you're one of the people leading that charge in terms of like showing up and helping destigmatize and work on depathologizing what it's like to be an autistic human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for like taking the hot potato, hot potato and you have a way with words that I, I don't like, I, you, you should be in charge of the encouragement pieces on the podcast. I'm not able to, um, encourage in the same way that you are. And which is probably why I'm an analytic therapist and not like a, um, no, but thank you. That, that was moving to hear you say those words. Thanks. And, you know, I think we could have a whole episode on this. Maybe that informs next week's conversation, but not only how to seek support as a grad school student or a new therapist in the profession, mm -hmm. how to find your own ND affirmative therapy. Like we've got to be talking about this more. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just put up a handful of directories on my website, which we can link to. Um, and thankfully, like the directories that are out there are, I mean, they're small, but they're growing every week to where I think it's becoming more of a feasible option, even a year ago, because that is the number one DM I get is like, help me find a therapist. Yep. Um, and in the last year, I've, it's, um, I've seen a lot of growth and, and I think it will continue to. So yeah, there are some neurodivergent affirming directories or even just knowing what, yeah, like what to search for, what to ask. We should definitely do a podcast on that. That would be really helpful. This will help me next week when I message you and I'm like, what do you want to talk about today? But yeah, let's we talk about how to find a neurodivergent affirming therapist and um, like, yeah, like what questions you should ask. It's one of the things that's hard is it's so hard to find any therapist right now without a wait list that like the interview process of interviewing your therapist to become your therapist isn't really happening in the same way um, because just getting in with any therapist for most people is kind of the goal. If you're, if, if you're in crisis, if you are wanting to do the deeper reflective work and can wait on a wait list for six months, um, th then you've got more options. Yeah. And, and we can talk about that next week too. Yeah. I have the practice. I have 15 therapists who work at that practice. It's so hard to turn clients away when you know that they can't find that support anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you can't refer them. Yeah. It's so hard. Uh, it's so hard. And it's, it's even, it's so much more than just saying like, we have ND lived experience, right? Autistic group mm -hmm. practice owner, autistic clinicians, ADHD clinicians. You got you got to do the work too. I mean, it's not as simple yeah. as just like saying I'm an anti-oppressive, uh, right? Black Lives right. Matter, anti-racist therapist. You got to do the fucking work. Yeah, these are easy words to say now, but it's like, okay, the language is right, but but does it match? Is is the person doing the work? I, I love that. Yeah. Are the values consistent? And it, it does mean hiring consultants and trainers to come in yeah. with lived experience who are experts in the field to mm -hmm. help you continue to grow. Again, I'm diverging. I want to talk quickly. You know, I'm just being aware of time too. Um, the double empathy binds. To oh, yeah. Too. I want to talk about that because what happens, right, is we mentioned this, alluded to this earlier. And a lot of you who are listening who may become therapists in grad school programs, are therapists, whatever the case may be, may have been told by society that autistic people cannot be empathetic, cannot mm -hmm. hold space, cannot be attuned. Megan, your thoughts? 
Oh, yeah. I, I love the double empathy. Yeah, you know. I love I love Milton's work. Um, And so did you know that they like did an empirical study to follow up with this theory? Okay, so can I info dump for like five minutes? So, sure. yeah, um, the theory comes from Damien Milton. I think I've got that name right. I'll correct it in the notes if not. But he, I believe he's a sociologist in the UK um, who is autistic. And it's this idea that, and it by empathy, so there's different kinds of empathy. And what he's really talking, I think, primarily about cognitive empathy and perspective taking and this whole like theory of mind idea of, yes, autistic people struggle to understand neurotypical people's theory of mind. But also the neurotypical or realistic person struggles to understand the autistic theory of mind. But autistic people understand autistic people. So it's a cross neurotype interaction. It's not that there is a deficit in the autistic person's theory of mind or ability to consider the subjectivity of another person. So there's a follow-up study done by another group of researchers. They're like, let's test this theory. So what they did is they had groups of dyads so they had three different groups. They had autistic to autistic pairings, non-autistic, non-autistic, and then autistic, non-autistic pairings. And they had them either do some sort of activity or have a conversation um, that was structured. And then after the interaction, they each rated the rapport. And rapport is just like how easy was it to connect with the other person. Now, if we're going with the deficit model of autism, you would think that the autistic to autistic partners would struggle the most because you'd have two people with social communication deficits trying to interact, right? And so if that's true, then the that would be the worst. And then the autistic, non-autistic pairing, the non-autistic person could like hold up, you know, the, the non-autistic person by all of their social awesomeness. Um, but if the double empathy problem was right, then you wouldn't see that. And that's exactly what they found. They found the rapport was the highest among non-autistic, non-autistic, second highest among autistic, autistic, and lowest among autistic, non-autistic. So cross neurotype. They did a follow-up study where people were watching videos and reported them. And the autistic, autistic parents were actually the highest rapport of observers, which was really interesting. So what this research essentially shows is that it is a cross neurotype interaction that makes it harder to build rapport, harder to understand what the other person's thinking, not an autistic, like innate deficit that is baked into us. It is a dynamic that happens between two people. I love the way you laid that out. And that just speaks volumes to how ableism has misconstrued how we, we kind of perceive autistic people to be able to interact to. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that you're, you know, we can say that it's, you, you can all think about your friend groups and your, your social relationships or anyone that you feel connected to. And I would encourage you to think about that, like neurotype interaction and communication. How easy does it feel to fall into communication and conversation and socializing? How easy does it feel to be able to build connection and, and rapport and as therapists, this is a crucial component of our work. Building rapport is is the foundation. I think if you don't mm -hmm. have it, it doesn't matter how good of a therapist you are, the client's not going to have a great therapeutic experience and vice versa. And yeah. yeah. It just speaks volumes to the ability to do so 
and to really come alongside and, and easily kind of drop into, into relationships. So I do think that's a really important thing to remember. And Megan, again, love the way you laid that out very, very clearly too. Yeah, I, I love that study because um, I, I think it really, it gives us empirical grounding to start talking and training therapists of thinking through cross neurotype um, interactions through a cross-cultural lens of that that is how therapists should be approaching so much of the training. It, it's just kind of gross to hear how, how you should engage your autistic clients. Like it is so much more enlivening and expansive to talk about it. Like this is a cross neurotype interaction, a cross cultural interaction that's happening, leading with intellectual humility and curiosity as, as we would in any cross cultural therapeutic dyad. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, interviewed an autistic therapist on my other podcast yesterday and she was just talking about the, the frustration around grad school programs really not getting this right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. honestly hardly ever fucking talking about it so yeah we need to have more courses popping up in grad school programs on how to work with neurodivergent clients and not just simply a, a glance over of like oh yeah these are some disorders in the dsm well and when it is talked about it's typically talked about in children and here's the thing is like we're in therapy, right? We know that so many of us have PTSD, substance abuse problems, anxiety disorders, depression, like the list goes on and on. We're in therapy. Um, I don't, I think programs don't realize that they don't realize that we're in, we're in therapy. We're diagnosed with other things often, and we're being treated for other things, but we're there. Um, and programs will really need to be thinking about this in the next well, yesterday, but in the next five, 10 years, I really hope that they start seriously considering how do we work with neurodivergent adults? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, those neurodivergent kiddos become neurodivergent adults. It's not like, mm -hmm. you know, autistic kiddo, then all of a sudden no more autism. Um, mm -hmm. I like to think about it as like the ADHD or, or autism is the foundation of the house. And the PTSD, the substance use, the depression, mm -hmm. it's the furniture. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that metaphor. That's helpful. And yeah. I think it all, it all starts to come together when you start to realize like, if this is baseline, right? Like this is, and then you're experiencing these symptoms of mental health because <laughs> of right. neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. condition. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause then if you're, so then if you're treating the PTSD, so you're getting new furniture, but like the foundation of the house is cracking and breaking because you're not addressing like sensory needs and all these other things. It doesn't matter how much like remodeling you do of the furniture, if you're not addressing the foundation and the vulnerabilities there. Yep. Well, I am going to segue us out of this because okay. you're like, so now let's, let's do this thing. But I, I'm just being aware of time. And I think that this is a wonderful conversation, one that we could have guests on and, and, and talk about their own experiences mm -hmm. as autistic therapists and, and grad school participants, what we would like to have seen differently in school, what we want to see for the future generation. And I think that, you know, if we can continue to all advocate together, then hopefully we can make some fucking change. And again, to those of you who have experienced what Megan brought up, I'm sorry. and. 
I hope that you can find solace in the fact that there are a lot of autistic therapists out there doing this type of work, mm-hmm. openly discussing their livelihoods and sharing their experiences, because I think it's helpful to validate and to help hopefully, quote unquote, mm-hmm. normalize the human condition experience that we're all having together. So I just want to say thanks for this conversation, Megan, and I'm looking forward to talking about how to find ND affirmative care next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And that sounds good. And I'm awkward with goodbyes. I'll take over. So everyone, thanks for listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast on all major platforms, weekly episodes out, like, download, subscribe, and share. We'll see you next week. Thanks. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.